Here's something you never thought you would hear in a Folger Shakespeare Library podcast. Oh, God, I hate Shakespeare. That's right, I said it. No, I do. I hate Shakespeare. Don't worry. It's not what you think. Don't hate. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. This podcast is called Play On. In 2015, a new musical opened on Broadway. The plot, two brothers living in England in 1595 have had their playwriting careers upended by the arrival of a new guy from Stratford-upon-Avon. They consult a soothsayer named Thomas Nostradamus, who peers into the future and gives them the solution to getting a professional leg up. What the hell are musicals? It appears to be a play where the dialogue stops and the plot is conveyed through song. Through song? Yes. Wait, wait. so an actor is saying his lines and then out of nowhere he just starts singing? Yes. Well, that is the stupidest thing that I have ever heard. You're doing a play, got something to say, so you sing it? It's absurd! Who on earth is going to sit there while an actor breaks into song? The show is called Something Rotten, written appropriately enough by two brothers, Wayne and Carrie Kirkpatrick. Wayne's a successful Nashville songwriter whose credits include the Grammy-winning Song of the Year, Change the World, and carries a successful Hollywood screenwriter whose scripts include Chicken Run, the best-reviewed film the year that it came out. Something Rotten ran on Broadway for two years and 742 performances. Now, as we're recording this, it's on national tour. Carrie and Wayne joined us from studios in Los Angeles and Nashville to talk about just where this playful idea came from. They are interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Oh! Musical, a musical, a puppy piece releasing all your blues where crooners crew. Well, I know it's been a long road for you two getting this show to Broadway, and I read somewhere it took about 20 years. So if I could take you back to the beginning, did you start out wanting to spoof Shakespeare? And I'll throw that to you, Wayne. I don't know that spoofing Shakespeare was the initial idea. We just, we wanted to write a musical, and actually we don't really know how the idea came about. It was so organic. Um, you know, there was a lot of, um, what if two writers were just trying to write a hit, and they were um, constantly in the shadow of the guy that everything he wrote turned to gold. And, you know, each of us, we all have someone that is always doing a lot better than we are. You know, so, <laughs> so it was really it was more like Broadway in the '30s, is what you were you were yeah. uh, you yeah, were harkening back to. Yeah, the the original jokes that we had, we were like, "What if Shakespeare's London was like Broadway and Hollywood in the '30s?" And they they had agents and they had lawyers, and Shakespeare's uh, their agents would be William and Morris, and um, <laughs> the law firm was Rosen, comma Krantz, comma and Guildenstern. And, I uh, saw that coming. Yes. <laughs> and one of the one of the early jokes we had was that our two writers who were down on their luck went found out that their agent signed a Shakespeare and they went to him because he was this young upstart out of Stratford that had just written Romeo and Juliet and they saw him as competition. So they went to their agent and said, This we think this is a conflict of interest here. And their agent said, You're right, we're dropping you. Um <laughs> 
So those were kind of some of the original arenas that we were playing in. And that led to, all right, if these guys were trying to beat Shakespeare at his own game because he was a visionary, then the idea was to go to a soothsayer and to predict the future of theater. And that soothsayer says musicals. Because that's what every writer of who wants to have a hit wants to do, right? They want to find some, some <laughs> someone to tell them to predict the future for them. Yes. Uh, well, if any of us could find knew the shortcut to instant success, <laughs> right? Uh, the uh, the free lunch, and and your version yeah. of uh, this this Shakespeare was a Shakespeare as a rock god. So how did that idea evolve? What's funny? We used to. Um, when we started pitching the story, we would always say, and Shakespeare is, you know, he's like a rock star. You know, Shakespeare should really be performing his greatest hits. And we, uh, that's where we came up with the song that we have now, which is called Willpower. Ladies and gentlemen, all the way from Stratford-upon-Avon, the king of couplets, the sultan of sonnets. The man who put the I am in I am big pentameter. Please put your hands together for the one, the only, William Shakespeare! Thank you! Is it good to see me or what? You kicked the floor horn! Okay, okay! Shakespeare's in the park doing his, his hits. And his hits are Shall I Compare Thee to a Summer's Day and and uh, now's the winter of our discontent. And so the idea is that people are shout, shouting out, you know, do Sonnet 18 like they're at a Beatles concert. Do it with me. Now is the winter of our discontent. Now is the winter of our discontent. Make glorious summer by this son of York. Make glorious summer by this son of York. And then he hear say, glorious. Glorious. Do you mean me? Glorious. Well, I can't. For for Shakespeare fans, the funny thing about this idea of Shakespeare as as a rock star is that historically other playwrights, Thomas Middleton has a had a play called A Game of Chess that ran for nine days straight. Christopher Marlowe's play, The Jew of Malta, once had ten performances in six months. Shakespeare didn't have that. Yeah. Uh, so were you aware of that irony when you were? When yeah, I think we were aware of the fact that he was. You know, he he wasn't as popular as we make him out to be, but um, our show does a lot of melding of two worlds. In you mean our now day, and then, yeah. <laughs> yes, and, and in our day, Shakespeare is the rock, the literary rock star, you know, so we kind of take that notion and put it into that time with our writers in our show, and he is a rock star, you know, so we we play fast and loose with some of the some of the facts there. I think we started with, layman's knowledge of Shakespeare. Then we would do our research and go, oh, shoot. He actually was... Um, <laughs> they, they didn't Oops, publish. we got it all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't do the first photo. He didn't really become that famous until 100 years later. And then the whole notion of some of his works, you know, some of them being credited to him that maybe he didn't write, uh, we run with and have, and have fun with. Right. Um, research goes both ways. It can really help you out. It can really get in the way yeah. when you're when you're writing. Uh, Mostly, we do anything. it to avoid writing. Right. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a fantastic distraction. And we would um, find these facts that we found interesting that we would try to incorporate. Well, sure. And you come up with a really credible god of rock. 
yes. as Shakespeare, I've got to yeah. say. He's just insanely full of himself. But he's he's also kind of insecure, which seems very true to superstars. And, and Wayne, I know you've worked with all sorts of, of famous musicians like Garth Brooks and Peter Frampton and, and Eric Clapton. Did you have any experiences with those kinds of, of collaborators that inspired the Shakespeare character? Well, I think if you talk to anyone, I mean, at the at the core of it, there is this incredible amount of insecurity. I know That's you just had a constant. Yeah, you had a conversation with Paul McCartney about this. Oh, I did. Yeah, Gary did. <laughs> I'm, I met him through a, a project I was doing at DreamWorks Animation, and in that meeting, he started talking about wondering how you'll be remembered. And he said, um, and there, there was only four of us in the room, so it was a pretty intimate conversation, but he said, we, we know how John will be remembered because he's being remembered. But he looked at me and he was like, but, you know, I'm, I'm not just the cute one. I wrote Eleanor Rigby. I wrote, I was like, you don't have to convince he's me, man. He's making the case to <laughs> you, Carrie I'm like, Patrick. I, yeah. said, I said to him, I, I have an idea of how you're going to be remembered. And he went, mwah. Uh, <laughs> But it was amazing. But yeah, you go really, Paul McCartney? <laughs> no, worried like, about <laughs> it was <laughs> it was weirdly encouraging. Yeah. You know, we had a song in our show that it didn't make it all the way through, but we had it for several years, and it was a song that Nigel, the kind of insecure brother, sings, and it's all about his insecurities, and and it's called "I Suck." Yeah, I'm I'm and kind it, of astonished it, it didn't. It, it was just one of those, especially with the poetry of that. It made title. it all the way to the second to last day of rehearsal before we went into the St. James Theater. It was staged and everything, and everyone wow. really loved it, but it didn't move the story forward. That's really interesting, which is very different than what you do, Wayne. Usually, right? You're, you're, you've written yeah. pop songs and country western songs and and rock songs. Yeah, in writing commercial pop songs, what you know. Uh, it's all about the moment that that song creates, and that song is is doing a lot of work. You're trying to either tell a tell a story or create a a, a visual of some sort. It's a listening experience, you know. And they're like, self-contained, right? I mean, they're yeah, and they're self-contained. And and with a musical, it is only a part of a bigger picture so and it has to do a lot of other things and it's also has a lot of other things going on behind it is it the right person singing at the right time is it the right kind of song we need something more up tempo here we had we've had two ballads back to back so we need a different thing and then the killer was always that eighth thing that box that we had to tick was is it funny and Ugh. that would just <laughs> that, was, that was just killer you oh, know to go back agony. in I mean, that's where we, we had written this song called uh, Bottom's Gonna Be On Top, which closes Act Two. No more Mr. Anonymous. No more world that is Nick Bottomless. And it just wasn't funny. And I remember Wayne and I were leaving a Chick-fil-A parking lot after going through the drive-thru. <laughs> Chick-fil-A. Which is, <laughs> which is where we that go seems for, relevant for to inspiration. Your, to your <laughs> and, plot line. Uh, and <laughs> it was just, we came up with this idea of a uh, uh, tap-off. Not so fast. Hello, Will. I knew you wouldn't go down without a fight. The tops are nay, thou surely doth jest. I say on my honor here, I doth protest. Yawn, rhyming couplet that is so 1580s. Oh, yeah? Well. If you wanna make it to the top, 
then you're gonna have to go through me. Cause on the top is where I live and I will not be giving up that easily. So there. Oh man, I have been waiting for this moment for so long. I'm gonna enjoy it when I knock you off your perch. Oh no, you won't. Oh yes, I will. Oh, no, you we were like, yeah, that seemed kind of funny. And we went home like and wrote. It was like a walk-off. It was like a, it's sort of like a rumble. It's a duel. Between, you know, right, it's a right. duel. Yeah. And, um, you know, that, and that became our comedic button of that song, you know, what we were building to comedically. And explain the Chick-fil-A um, tie-in, which is that we haven't talked much about the plot, but it does eventually involve a very special <laughs> musical that these two brothers come up with coming out of their talk with Nostradamus, well, the, the, the soothsayer. Yeah, yeah the pitch was always, um, and we would say to people, Nick goes to a soothsayer to say, tell me what the future of theater will be. And he says, musicals. And he would say, what are musicals? And the soothsayer, who ends up being Nostradamus, not the Nostradamus, but his nephew, Thomas, <laughs> um, he he says, uh, it's, a, it's a play where the dialogue stops and the plot is conveyed through song. Then Nick goes back because they have a hard time figuring out what a musical should be about. And when Nick goes back to Nostradamus and says, what will Shakespeare's greatest play be? And Nostradamus, who's a little bit like a satellite in a rainstorm. Right. Or he's, um, or he's like cut rate because he is the cousin. He's yeah, not, he's, yeah. He's, he's like right. B-lister. Yeah. Soothsayer. He's yeah. just a little... Or maybe hard of hearing. I don't know. The synapses are not all firing, you know, and... Uh, so he looks into the future and says, Shakespeare's greatest play, the one they'll be talking about for generations to come, will be called Omelette. And, uh, wait, no, wait, oh, wait, that's right, Omelette. And um, there's something Danish. And he's like, oh, there's a breakfast theme. And then ham something, ham ham omelette, must be it. Yeah. So he's like, all right. Um, and we always played this like Nick is a guy who just got a hot tip on a pony. And uh, he is going to bet the farm on this pony. You know. So once you came up with this omelet idea, did everything flow naturally from that? Because I mean, the- <laughs> no, we we kind of painted ourselves into this horrible corner, yes. <laughs> kind of the opposite of flowing. Well, what, <laughs> what is the what's the horrible corner though? Well, we had to write it. Yeah, we had to write a song <laughs> called Omelet. I see within this fluffy fold the scrambled nature of my soul. I'm cracking up as I begin to see the bits of me within this. Well, first that we tried writing a, the, the musical, the whole mini musical. Oh, wow, that's a lot of work. Yes, Wayne's cr- curling yeah, into a I, fetal I, position I, now as we speak. Is that right, Wayne? <laughs> it was, you know, trying to combine um, musical references meshed with um, Hamlet. We wrote about 10 different versions, and these were not short versions. These were, you know, sometimes six, seven minute long Nine minutes. songs that. Yeah. Yeah, that we would, um, I know at one point we had written, I think we were on our sixth time and we we knew that one wasn't working. And I remember saying to Carrie, you know, there's not a saying that goes the seventh time is a charm. No, it was, that was, it was actually <laughs> we, the ninth. You were grasping at straws at that point. Remember you said nine yeah, times, like, <laughs> there's no ninth yeah. is the charm. And we were sitting at a restaurant. We had just turned it into the director. And said, if he doesn't like this, I don't know what I'm going to do because I don't have another one in me. He had said to us, I just need a big production number, dance number. Because at one point we had said, and then the, the tap dancing eggs come out. And and uh, he was like, oh, I like that. that. I can really do something with that. 
And we were like, okay, so we kind of always knew we were building to some tap dancing eggs. So we had come up with this song that went, um, one singular sensational egg stands alone. And then oh, that sounds one, familiar. it was, and we thought this is it. Yeah. We've done it. And we got the call. It was like, guys, sorry, I know you've been working really hard, but I just don't think this is it. And it was such a dark day. It was just really terrible. Well, that's the thing with musicals. Yes. You never know if you're writing the most brilliant, hilarious thing in the history of the genre or if you're you're doing springtime for Hitler. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. When we, when um, we started grasping for... Um, I just, Carrie, I don't know if you remember this. But what if we make it like a, a Greek tragedy and... And there's these guys and there's, you know, we're talking about eggs and fertility and what, if you know, there's Pericles and Sophocles and his less fertile brother, Testicles, <laughs> you know, which and it's pretty good. Actually. <laughs> OK, let's go there. Yeah, okay, no, that won't work. Okay. Then we had the queen reference. We had because we were trying to do something scandalous that got them arrested. And so right. we had the queen comes out from Midsummer Night's Dream because we were doing a mashup. And then wearing the big Queen Elizabeth type with the red hair. And, and then that hoop opens up and out steps someone who's doing Freddie Mercury. And it was a song that was called Sometimes You Have to Crack a Few Eggs If You Want to Make an Omelet. It was like a Queen song. This all and, sounds uh, awesome. And um, we wrote all these. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> and, um, yes. and then finally we came out with this Make an Omelet. You make wine from sour grapes. You got a flat pancake, hey, call it a crepe when life gives you eggs, make an omelet. And we put it up and it got this, a really good response and we were all kind of amazed. And the and next, there you had your answer. And then the next day we added mm -hmm. a few things to make an omelet and it's, it, we're just like, leave it alone. Yeah, when it looks like you should quit, find another way of looking at it when life gives you eggs. People actually go crazy because we have this song called A Musical in Act One, which it's a love letter to musicals, and it, and it also references right. a lot of musicals. And which is a showstopper. It was, and and and, and it really does illustrate the the trick of of yeah. all of some, something rotten, which is that it sends up both Shakespeare and musicals at the same time, both with and to send something up, you have to love it. It makes fun of musical theater while at the same time paying homage to musical theater and loving it. And and since it is kind of this love letter to Broadway musicals, it made me wonder, were you both, you know, high school card-carrying Broadway musical geeks? Mm -hmm. Wayne? Yes. <laughs> um, oh, we both went to a, um, a magnet school, Baton Rouge High School, and um, we just, yeah, we were we were part of the theater department we were those those people in glee we did seven or eight productions a year and i went and saw you know i was in junior high i saw wayne do 1776 in that auditorium and i was like oh i want to do that wayne and i didn't go to new york to, for the first time till 1983 and didn't get Baton up there Rouge is a long way away that's right and uh, yeah. the first musical i ever saw on broadway was my one and only with tommy toon and twiggy and it was at the St. James Theater, which, where we ended up, you know, wow. 30, 40 years later. So, Well, given all that musical theater history, where did Shakespeare come in? In terms, I, I took intro to Shakespeare in ninth grade and hated it. 
Um, <laughs> and my teacher was not very good. It wasn't until I, I did Romeo and Juliet as a senior and played Romeo. And that's when I started realizing, oh, it's really not meant to be read. It's meant mm-hmm. to be performed. And the, then the more I got into it, I was like, oh, this is fun to, you know, gallop a pace, you fiery-footed steeds. And it's like, wow, this, is, this language is pretty amazing. And uh, um, so my knowledge and our, other, our writing partner, John O'Farrell, uh, who's British and therefore just Shakespeare is more in his blood, and that's when John came on board, we joke about we were adapting one of John's novels into a script. John and I met on Chicken Run. And I told him this musical we were writing. And I was like, oh, hey, you know a lot about Shakespeare. Why don't you write this with us? That would save us a lot of reading. <laughs> <laughs> and John is funny. And he did become our, he, he teases me because every reference I have was just all Romeo and Juliet. Right. You were so, one, one trick pony. And John knows quotes from a bunch of the show. Now I, I know more because we've research more, but it was the opposite with um, music theater references. We had all of those, and all John knew was Oliver and My Fair Lady. What, um, what about you, Wayne? What, did you have a Shakespeare turning point? Of course, you know, the general knowledge that we all have on a base level of Shakespeare. But for me, I've always been interested um, in historical figures. And so from a historical aspect, I've always been fascinated with the concept of what if we could go back in time and meet some of these people that contributed to um, uh, to history or to pop culture or, or whatever it is. So I think for me, that as a way into a story, um, in, in this, the few stories that I've dabbled in writing myself have always involved some sort of historical character like Edgar Allan Poe or Stephen Foster or, you know, and so Shakespeare was just another one of those characters that could do that. The, the original title of this musical was Shakespeare's Omelette. And our producer, Kevin McCollum, was like, I don't think we want Shakespeare anywhere in the title. And, and is it because Shakespeare is that sacred cow that people are afraid of? I mean, how, how big a factor was it? I think the fact of Shakespeare just getting your project greenlit. I think Kevin just thinking ahead to people coming to New York and when you're competing with these long-running juggernauts like Phantom of the Opera and Wicked and Lion King, and then shows like Kinky Boots or Waitress or things that are based on movies or that have Cindy Lauper or Sting or whatever they have. I mean, he had nothing. He had us. <laughs> and we had the director of Book of Mormon, you know, which was sort of helping. And the basic feeling of you put Shakespeare in it uh, in the title – and it's going to send a signal that it's uh, it's a deterrent for a lot of people coming for a couple of hours of uh, good old-fashioned frivolous entertainment. We used to have this line, we cut it. He's, he writes everything, histories, tragedies, comedies. And Nick says, comedies, name, no, come on, name one thing of his that's funny. Anything, just give me a line, <laughs> anything. And he says, on my word will not carry coals, for then we should be colliers. And everybody laughs, and Nick's like, that's not, it's not funny. And uh, there, there used to be a line that went, well, that some people in the theater laughed. And he said, right, that one annoying bloke in the back who chuckles loudly, <laughs> look at me, I'm so clever, I get the reference. And there's always somebody at a Shakespeare we play. All, I was going to say, we all <laughs> know like, that person. Who goes, right. huh. <laughs> yes. You know, one thing we didn't talk about is that your play is about brothers, playwright yes. brothers, collaborators. 
you guys, I've gotten a little bit of a window into how you work together, but is that is that why you wrote about brothers? They didn't start as brothers. Huh. Yeah, for the for several years it was just two guys that were writing partners. How'd yeah, they become I brothers? Carrie, I think one point we were talking, Carrie said, what if they're brothers? I was like, oh, that would be... Um, that makes sense. Yeah, we could probably <laughs> draw from that. Wayne just said, we can draw on that. Yeah. That you said that. What were, what were <laughs> yes. you thinking? Yes, it's, it's way close to home, yes. <laughs> um, no, I think it was just, oh, you know, you can draw from... It's the old, you know, mom always liked you better kind of family experiences and, and how brothers, you know, you're around someone their whole life, so you know... It's like I know what you're doing. I I know you. You know, and I can I can see through. You know you. each you know, other. There's all that stuff that you playbook. Can use. We used to uh-huh. have this yes. argument, and uh, and it's not in it anymore. But it was um, he would say, "You always do this to me. You know, you always tell me. You know, boss me around. Tell me what to write, just like with the flower poem." And he was like, "What, what flower poem? The one I wrote when I was ten. I gave it to you, and it was a flower. And you said it should be a tree." Wayne doesn't and, hold on to and things. And you said, and then, and then, and, and Nick goes, the tree was the bigger idea. And he's like, I didn't want to write about a tree. I wanted to write about a flower. It's like, oh my God, is that what this is all about? You know, something I did when you were 10. And we, we have moments like that because we're constantly submitting things to each other. And there's a subtle sort of an email will come through and a couple of days goes by and you don't get a response. It's like, so I uh, guess you didn't really like that song that much. Oh, sorry. No, I just time got away. Well, no, because usually you write back, you know, that was great. It's like, well, it's yeah. not my favorite. Oh, okay. And it's, you know, there's the baggage yeah. of whatever's going on in your life or there is the, you always do this to me. And I know you're still getting back to me because I used to wear that flop, you know, I used to play your guitar. Wayne had a really yeah. nice guitar when he was in high school. <laughs> it was an ovation. Or remember when we lived in that apartment and you got the bigger room? Why did you get the bigger room? You know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like marriage times a hundred. <laughs> exactly. And I still, yeah. I don't know why I got the bigger room because I'm the younger brother. <laughs> so are you guys finished with musicals <laughs> or finished with each other now? <laughs> no, we're, we're in the midst of writing another. Yeah. Can you say anything about it? We can't actually because it's, it is a movie and I think the announcement is coming out next month, but um, we're really excited about it. Okay, enough said. But Mm -hmm. before I let you go, let me try this. Has writing this musical nominally about Shakespeare changed the way that you read Shakespeare or your feelings about about the plays? Oh, yeah, for sure. Definitely. In what way? I think in a a weird way, it's kind of personalized him to me a little bit as you just start to think about what it was like to create back then. And it mostly makes me think about the just the language, the sophistication of the language, the sophistication of the plots, and how long they take. Now, I'll admit, I'm a, I'm a product of of shorter attention span media, what it's done to me. So to get to Romeo and Juliet and a page and a half Queen Mab speech just about dreams, I'm like, come on, can we can, can we, we speed this can up we a tighten bit? this up a little bit? <laughs> But an audience sitting there, I mean, what else did they have to do, you know? And what lives were they going back to? But to sit and just to be fascinated just by language. And I, I got to say, in the, our current climate, that we're, what we're listening to every day, and, and, and things being reduced now to 140 characters, and oratory just going out the window, 
the, the beauty of language and how important it is um, and how important language was to the people who were creating it and the people who were listening to it. There's a, I, I watch it now, uh, I read it now with a sort of marveling at the attention to the word choice. And I would think also he was writing these plays pretty fast, too. I, I mean, at record-breaking speed. So both the, 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 the speed and the slow theater movement, the nuance. Yeah, yeah that's mind-boggling is, is what the, um, the depth of what he wrote in such a short amount of time. Why can't we do that? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I guess the only way we can relate is because Wayne and I, it always what we dread the most is the lyric writing in it because it's really time consuming. Searching for the right word, you know, and words that rhyme and then trying to say something that's evocative or funny and it's not cliche. And that search for the, the right words is really often demoralizing um, because you kind of slam up against your own limitations and the limitations of your own vocabulary, and and you you end up spending searching and searching. And fortunately, we have Google and thesauruses and things to search for the right word. But oftentimes, we will sit there for three hours to come up with one phrase. He put the I am uh, the I am in iambic pentameter. Yes. <laughs> That's right. Three yeah. hours, guys. <laughs> no, I remember we I remember sitting for three hours, and then Wayne and I are always uh, arguing over. I think I wrote that line. But we sat for three hours in a musical, like going, and we knew it went, it's a musical, a musical. And then like, what does it say next? And for just sitting there, and it's like, what should it be? What should it be? And it's like, there's nothing as amazing as a musical. Yeah. Yeah. That works. Let's go to lunch. (laughs) Because that was a day's work. Of just landing on, there's nothing as amazing as a musical. So it had the alliteration that we wanted. It sang well in the phrase. I don't remember who came up with it. Wayne says it's him. I'm pretty sure it was me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It was Um, both of us. (laughs) Well, it was just such a pleasure to talk with both of you today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Our pleasure. Thank you. And best of luck with the Mystery Project. Oh, yes. Check your local listing. Big applause with everyone cheering for us. Wayne and Terry Kirkpatrick are co-authors, along with John O'Farrell, of Something Rotten. It ran on Broadway from 2015 through January 2017 and opened its national tour just a few weeks later at the Boston Opera House. Carrie and Wayne were interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Play On was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. We had help from Cameron Adkins at WPLN in Nashville and Brian Allison at the Marketplace Studios in Los Angeles. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore. Your starlet won't quit, big hit.